This morning we are continuing in a series that we began a few weeks ago leading up to this day, and uh, he has risen. Woke up excited for this morning and uh, excited to share what God has brought to me to to want to encourage you from God's Word this morning. So as uh, we get started, I'm going to begin. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. This is a famous quote from Stalin. After making a few million deaths of his own, he died in 1953. Oscar Wilde, though, in the moments before his impending death, made a much more jovial jovial response to his wife, quote, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. (laughs) He was witty even to the end, and then he died. All current data today will tell you that all human beings who live have a current ratio of life to death. One of every one person will die. All of the labors of modern medicine throughout the years haven't made a dent in that statistic. We will all die. And isn't it strange, though, in the midst of that, how we decay? Have you you thought about that recently? Every single one of us here is decaying, and yet we, we can't really see the entirety of it. Just this last week, I was wanting to go for a a short walk after writing my Good Friday sermon because someone encouraged me to, and I headed off to the back of the office, and like a million times before as a kid, I thought I would just hop off the back deck. It's, It's literally this high. And I hopped, and I landed, and I hurt. Didn't happen 20 years ago. Didn't happen 10 It didn't happen five years ago. But on Wednesday, I was in pain, my back writhing in pain, and I was reminded... I'm decaying. I'm falling apart. My father, whom I called on Thursday because it was his birthday, asked how old he was. He said 76. He said just a few years from 80. I asked how he was doing. He said, well, my knees are okay. This is what we talk about now. My knees are okay. My back's doing all right. Just getting older, moving slower. I'm decaying. He's just getting older, and things don't work like they once did. No matter how young you are here this morning, you're decaying also. You are quite literally falling apart. How is that for an encouragement this morning? Let's pray and be dismissed. You're not that lucky. There is decaying happening for each and every one of us here. You can go to the doctor and you can have them try to explain this, but all they will try to do is basically describe it to you. There isn't any details. Each person is different. Each person is, is, is breaking apart every day that they live. My father-in-law says, you, you're born, you go to school, you get married, you have kids, and then you die. And death, death seems so fine, doesn't it? The finality of death can make us angry. I've seen many people over the years in ministry just mad at death. The surprise of death, of, of not knowing that it's coming for someone they really love and care for. It, it springs on them, and it doesn't ask for permission. And I've sat with people grieving. They're feeling like uh, people that have shared their life with, the, these people that they care for, are just passing one after another, and they have no control over it, and it makes them angry. The finality of death also can make us fearful. For many, there is just a step into something that's completely unknown. When will it happen? How will it happen? And the fear of death can restrain us, can hold us back. 
I believe I shared this before. We have a child, I won't say who, but a few years ago, whenever Easter weekend would roll around, this child would get really upset. In fact, they would pass out at the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And I remember with Katie trying to figure out this kid, what is going on? And we didn't recognize all of the, the details, the connections. Why was she getting so upset week after week around Easter? So much so that she would pass out when the story of Jesus' crucifixion was told. And one week we happened to be visiting a church down in Portland, and those poor church workers, they didn't know us. <laughs> you know, you're sitting in a service, and here you get a pager, but there it was like a number on the screen. So, you know, you see the number flash up, and, you, and then you just look to see who's leaving. And it was us. The number popped, and I go back there, and poor teacher's eyes wide open, thinking that maybe she's epileptic, you know, her body convulses, they're talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and she slid out of her chair, and fearful, and so I pull her aside and, and sat down, what, what's going on, what, what's happening here, and she said she's scared that she would need to die like Jesus would someday, and she got so upset, every time the story was told, she was fearful of death. Death is frightening. Death it seems to last and last. There's no end, and, and it's life's great mystery. It's final. What do you do with your thoughts of death? What happens when those thoughts come to the surface and rest on you? What happens when you think of death? Does your heart run to fear or faith? Does your heart run to hope or despair? Furthermore, on what basis does your heart rest on? You have to realize that just because you imagine what your afterlife will be doesn't mean that it just will be like that. There has to be some sort of basis. There has to be some solid truth that makes it so. Your, your positive thoughts about the future doesn't make them true. Is this life all that there is? This is what's being discussed, literally, today. And one-third of the world, today, it's being discussed. What happens after you die? Where will you spend eternity? And it's all based upon what happened 2,000 years ago. And this morning, the passage that we will spend our time in on this resurrection morning has incredible truth for each and every one of us here. There was one man... Just one who conquered death, who defeated death. In a world trying to avoid death, to, to try to beat it, to try to cure it, there's only one who defeated death, and his name is Jesus. So we're going to spend the majority of our time in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. If you have a Bible, please turn. If you don't have one, there's one provided in your seats. You're going to need it this morning. That's where we're going to be. So if you don't have a Bible open, you're going to be lost. And, this morning, it's Matthew chapter 28. It's on page 784. If you're unfamiliar reading the Bible, the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. And so we're Matthew 28, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And so I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that home with you. And we're going to read Matthew's account here of the resurrection. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. So listen as I read. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. 
Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell, the, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Before we launch in, I want to pray. And so I encourage you, you pray for me. I'll pray for you as we start. Father, this morning, as we look at the resurrection, may you stir our minds again to consider what, what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross and then in the tomb and give us fresh understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did for his people. And guide your people this morning to understand and apply your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you are the type A personality that likes to keep notes, sorry, we don't have the outline, but I'm going to give it to you right now. We will look at the new morning, the new announcement, and the new response. The new morning, the new announcement, and the new response. So first, the new morning. It says in verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And when the sky mixes purple with uh, night and orange from the morning sun, unable to make up its mind whether it's going to wake up or go back to sleep, it's early, it's dawn, they're heading to see the tomb. Do you think the woman would have been walking quickly or slowly? Do you think they would have talked on the way or just silence? How about their steps even? Were they drawn out, soft glances to the ground? I wonder if there was any briskness at all to their steps. I mean, it's early Sunday morning. I, I wonder this week if they slept at all Saturday night. You remember the, the events of the last few days for them, right? The, the weekend began with Jesus being betrayed by the one who had walked with him for years, their, their money keeper, their confidant, one of the twelve, Judas. I'm sure they got to know him over those years and those events, but, but now did they really know him at all? Then the trial, what a farce that was. Lies upon lies, poured over on top of one another. Deceit, treachery, and the penalty handed down to Jesus. Death. This all happens hours earlier for them. These, were these women even able to process what had transpired? Probably not. Their long-awaited Messiah, the one they had hoped for, the one they had read about, the one they looked for, was in their presence. He was there and hoped seemed fresh. It finally seemed real. The oppression they experienced seemed to be washing, washing away every day that they spent with Jesus. And, and so quickly, so grievously, it, it was stripped away from them. Jesus is dead. <clears throat> Death had come upon the one they loved, and they had no power to stop it. The Roman government, the religious, religious leaders, the people mocking, they're all against Jesus. And now, soon to be against them. The movement was over. Remember, they were there when the sky turned black in the middle of the day. They were there, and their ears heard the terrible, gut-wrenching shrieks of Jesus from the cross, crying out, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they tried to perceive what was happening. It was dark. It was shocking. It was, it was not expected in that moment. It seemed probably to move so quickly. How, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could Jesus die? They knew Joseph of Arimathea requested the body and prepared a tomb. Luke's gospel says the, the woman had come with him from the Galilee, followed after, and they observed the tomb and how the body was laid. They were there through it all. Jesus was buried on the day before the Sabbath, the preparation day. On the preparation day, they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils to, to bury Jesus properly, Luke says. But how can you be prepared to bury the Son of God? How do you prepare for that? The finality of death. The end of a dream. Luke says in chapter 23, they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. I'm quite sure they obeyed the law and stopped their activities. It likely seemed the thing to do. Re return to the law. It's, it's familiar in the customs. It's, it's requirements. And so they tried to rest. But have you ever tried to rest after a loved one has died? I'm sure their minds replaying the scenes all day long, all night. The lashings, the soldiers mocking, the jeering crowds, the blood. So much blood. The hearts grieving over and again. Nothing to distract them. They probably found no real rest for their souls. And there were still things to do to bury their Lord properly. And so they go, did you notice Matthew says, they go to the tomb. They're not expecting to see Jesus. Douglas O'Donnell says, how interesting that God didn't select the Sabbath, Israel's holy day, as the resurrection day. Instead, he chose the next day to be the new holy day. He chose Sunday to be the day we worship his son. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. Perhaps he chose a new day because a new era was breaking into world's history. And on the third day, the first day of the week, Sunday, they rose early in the morning and they walked to the tomb with hearts nearly too heavy to carry. Sorrow, I'm sure, filled their steps. Mourning and grieving was on their minds. These women were devo devoted followers of Jesus. They were, they were the last at the cross. And here they are, the first at the tomb. Luke says that they took certain other women with them, the spices which they prepared, and they went to the tomb. They expected to complete the, the mourning rituals even if they had not completed their grieving. But often in the Bible, dawn or early morning is the time God uses to make new revelations. Sunrise is when the Lord often surprises his people. Now after the Sabbath, Matthew says, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. A couple things I want you to notice here. First, in verse 2, there's an earthquake. In the Old Testament, earthquakes were connected to manifestations of the presence of God. 
At Sinai, the earth trembled, uh, the mountains shook. It would show the believers that, that God was present. It would, it would also show God's anger and judgment against his enemies. So maybe there's a bit of both here at the tomb. God was present with his people, and God was judging his enemies. So the earthquake was the first thing. The second thing I want you to notice was the appearance of the angels. Do you, do you notice how many times an angel begins a discussion with a human, and he says these words, Do not be afraid. Why? Because they're afraid. It's like on repeat in the Bible. You look in the Bible accordance and the angel's first words are almost, do not be afraid. Angels are not those things that we see in Christian bookstores of lovely little white-winged dolls. Not with little smiles. There aren't even female in the Bible. Not a little cute cherub with arrows to strike two lovers so they fall in love. That's not in the Bible. In the Bible... Angels are scary. They bring fear. They're not an easygoing creature. No, they strike terror in the hearts of people. And you read over and over in the Old Testament that people are afraid. And what you see in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the, the shepherds are fearful. You, you see in verse 4 here, though, that the guards see them appearing like lightning and they're white like snow. And how, how do they respond? They, they fall to the ground in fear and become like dead men. When the angel here in this text is seen sitting on the stone which sealed the tomb. I like that. Kind of like a visible sign, like, yeah, Jesus won. <laughs> Christ has the victory over this grave. As if the world could try to keep him out. <laughs> it didn't work. And so the angels... Words were there to bring comfort to the woman, but they also do some teaching. That leads to my second point, the new announcement. Verse 6 shows us the central fact of all history since the fall of man. This is one of the most important verses in your Bible that you should underline, if it's your Bible. <laughs> he is not here, for he is risen as he said. Amen. He has risen. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The great finality of death that we were thinking of at the beginning of this message is no more. Hallelujah. He has come back to life. He has gone into the grave and has come out on the other side. And if you're new to church, us specifically, or church in general, we're glad you're here. And you're coming to witness what Christians do on Sundays. We're here this morning as Christians because we believe that Jesus Christ was literally and physically resurrected from the dead. We believe that. We don't think it's an idle tale. We don't think it's some sort of analogy. We believe that Jesus was physically and literally murdered, killed, that he was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning, and on Sunday morning he physically resurrected from the grave. We believe that. We've embraced this, and we understand there's big implications for this. Do you believe it? That's the question of the hour. The women, the disciples... Man, they don't know what to believe at this point. They're in shock. Friends, try, try this week. Try reading the Gospels as if you didn't know the ending. Like you don't know what's going to happen. Try to put yourself in the shoes of some of your neighbors that don't know this. 
And when you come to Matthew 27, not knowing that chapter 28 is coming, you're going to be pretty sad. You're going to come to this chapter, and Jesus is dead. And his men have left. And how long has it been since you read this, thinking like them, putting yourself in their position? I've heard, and you maybe have too, of missionaries in foreign countries where they don't have the Bible and they walk people from the beginning in Genesis all the way through. And they get to this point in the Gospels and people are weeping. Because as you read the Bible and understand it, he's the one. And he's dead. How could this be? There's only one chapter left. Well, what's going to happen? I think our familiarity with the gospel has a detriment to us sometimes. You, you read it, you study it, but, but try, friends, really try this morning to put yourself in the position of these women. Death is real. Death is final. Death is separation and painful. And here they're coming to the tomb early on Sunday morning, and what do they find? Jesus is not there. Come, see the place where he lay. You see, this is where he brings them to see for themselves what happened. This is why the stone was rolled away. The stone was, was there from the officials to keep others from coming in and stealing the body, but the stone was really no match for Jesus. He was fine. He, he wasn't worried about the stone. The stone was rolled away not so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so we could come in and see that he's gone, that he's alive. Imagine the range of emotions these women and other disciples experienced in those days. The grieving, the wondering, the fright. With all the swirling emotions, they're tempted to interpret everything through their feelings. And we can feel so deeply that we give our feelings the last word. We can say to ourselves or others, I don't care what you say or what the facts are or what the Bible says. I know how I feel. And there's some that want the event, they want the feeling, they want the excitement, the enthusiasm. But listen, friends, how utterly worthless is your emotional response if you don't understand what's being presented? Because think of this, friends. The women stumble upon the resurrection of the Lord and they don't understand it. They need to be taught. They need the word given to them. If someone didn't teach you the significance of what it is and why it happened, then all you would have is just your feelings. And feelings can be a poor indicator of truth. That's why it's vital for you, friends, to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's Word every week. Because we can be led about by our subjective emotions, recognizing they're not all bad, but our subjective emotions have to be led and taught by the object of truth. God's Word We have to be taught what the Word is, what the Word says. We have to be taught what it means. You can't just have an an experience without an explanation. I mean, do you realize, and in this Matthew's Gospel, and in Mark's, and in Luke's, the empty tomb for the ladies isn't enough. Where is my Lord? They don't understand. The women stumble upon an empty tomb, and they don't get it. And that's what the angels are there for. To teach them. Don't you remember what Jesus said? And this is what we're about here on Sundays at at EBC. To come and see. To come and hear about the Lord. To come and be filled. To come and feast on the word of God. This is what all churches should be. 
And the women, they, they come in and they see, and they, in true missionary fashion, they're instructed to go and tell. Alluding to what Jesus will tell them later at the end of the chapter. And that leads to the third point, the new response. The verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The tomb had been filled on Friday and sealed on Saturday and emptied on Sunday. God was faithful to his promises. He did what he said he would do. And then he say, see, I've, I've told you. It was surely good for them to be here, but they have other work to do now. And they're not instructed to go and tell the chief priests or the Pharisees so that they can be confounded. No, they're to tell the disciples so that they will be comforted. The leaders would find out soon enough, and they would devise their own plan to try to squelch the news. And God isn't worried about them. And said his highest concern was his brothers, go and tell and they take off, he says. They take off with great fear and great joy. And what it must have been in that moment, rolling through their eyes and their minds, the, the moments of, of this. Fear and joy, he says. Fear and joy saturated them. To hear that Jesus is alive was most definitely something to be joyful over. But to stand there before those angels was most definitely something that struck fear in their hearts. It was good news, but, but I'm sure they're afraid that it was maybe too good to be true. Instead of the, the slow walk to the tomb, they take off as fast and run and find the disciples. And then, then he says, Jesus meets them. Do you see it in verse 9? And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Not only do these women have the first news of Jesus' return from the dead, but they have the first glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus sees them and he says, Greetings. Couldn't help but laugh when I read that this week. Greetings. Really, is that it? doesn't seem right. It seems like it would be more, you know. It really, literally means be glad. Rejoice. Look, Jesus is here. I'm, I'm alive, Jesus is saying. Death did not win. Everything that you thought was true is now different. Can you blame them for falling to the ground in worship? But he isn't done. In verse 10 he says, And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there will they see me. J.C. Ryle writes, There is something deeply touching in those simple words, My brothers. They deserve a thousand thoughts. Weak, frail, erring as the disciples were, Jesus still calls them brothers. Much as they had come short of their profession, sadly as they yielded to fear of man, they're still his brothers. Glorious as he was in himself, a conqueror over death and hell and the grave, the Son of God is still meek and lowly in heart, and he calls his disciples brothers. Oh, the grace of God. Do you see it? And what does he instruct them? He says to go to Galilee, just as he said before. If you haven't read yet, Matthew 26, in the upper room, the night when he's betrayed, as Jesus gives instructions to disciples, he says in verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's lost, if you remember in 26, because Peter says, Oh, I will never deny you. 
And we all know what happens, right? I didn't get it before as I studied this passage, but I understood this week. It makes a great deal. Matthew makes a great deal about the fact that Jesus' ministry began in Galilee. Galilee is of the Gentiles. And Matthew calls Jesus, according to the words of the prophet, a Nazarene. That is, people call him a Nazarene, someone from Galilee. Someone who would be looked down upon. And Matthew makes a great point about the fact that Messiah's ministry began in Galilee. And he goes right back to Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, to say that Jesus' ministry is in Galilee. It's a fulfillment of all that prophecy that Isaiah gave us in the, in the passage in Isaiah 9. And Galilee is so important to Matthew because it symbolizes Galilee of the Gentiles. The fact that Jesus is not only going to be Savior of the ancient people of God, the Jewish people, but he's going to be Savior for the world. For all people, from all nations, will come to know God in Jesus Christ. And here's Matthew pointing us right back to Galilee, right where that ministry began. And there, not from Jerusalem, but from Galilee, a worldwide proclamation of the resurrection will begin. And here's something interesting if you read your Bible. God always does some pre-explaining before the great act, and then he does post-explaining after that great act. He's really a fantastic teacher. Let's just think of the Exodus. God does some pre-explaining of the Exodus. What's it about? He sets the stage for them, and then he does the great act of the Exodus. And then after, he, he explains the post-explanation to his people so they can understand it. And he continues to do this throughout the Bible. And the same with the resurrection. Jesus pre-explained it to his people over and over and over and over. Because we're human and we don't get it. And then the event happens. Jesus is crucified. And then he comes back and guess what he does? He explains what just happened. Why? Because we wouldn't get it otherwise. Our heads would be still spinning. And in this, he's strengthening his people to trust his word. I think we could to do well, to learn from Jesus' example in our lives, in the ministry that he gives us, in the families that he gives us. I don't know about you, but I so often just want to explain things once and for people to get it. Can I get an amen from the parents here? How many times have I, you know, I say those things? And yet I would be there and I wouldn't get it. What? Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gives grace to his people and dedication to the truth to, to explain again to us what he said he was already going to do. Whether you know this or not, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is of first importance for a believer in Jesus. It doesn't minimize the cross and what Jesus did for us, but you will only understand the cross if you understand the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have to worry about a, a thing he told us in his entire life. Because it would all be a lie. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And if that's true, and it is, then we must accept everything he said about himself. Because his authority is absolute. Jesus says this at the end of this chapter. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Jesus' absolute authority based on the resurrection means that he has authority over life and death. And shortly before his death on the cross, Jesus said to his disciples in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. Uh, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Isn't that an astounding statement to think through? Among whom of you can determine when you will be born? No one can. And you can't determine how you want to end and how, and how it will happen. None of us can decide that will that way. None of us can decide that we're just going to come back to life. And yet this is what Jesus did. And if he did rise from the dead, then he has absolute authority over life and death. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we must also admit that he has authority over sin and Satan too. All men die because of their sin, for death is the payment of sins, as Roman tells us. However, Jesus is the one man in all history who died without sinning. And why did he die? Jesus died for our sins. He, he died in my place. And after his death, Jesus rose from the grave, not only in victory over death, but in victory over sin. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can all fall into a trap of thinking of Jesus' authority in an abstract way. He, he conquered death. He has authority over life. He has authority over sin. He has authority over Satan. And that's out there. It's outside of us. And we think of it in, a, in an abstract way, never personally applying it to us. But if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, about his authority over death, over sin, over Satan, the, then the unavoidable conclusion is he has authority over you and over me. There's no way to escape it. Jesus reigns supreme over everything, including you and including me. And that's the truth, whether you believe it or not. Just as the grass is green, regardless if you believe it's green or not. So Jesus is Lord over you, whether you believe it or not. I've heard people say throughout the years, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life, and I hate to break it to you, but you didn't have a choice in the matter. Jesus is Lord over your life. Scripture says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, not whether or not Jesus is Lord, the question is, will you submit to him as Lord now or when it's too late? See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has life-altering effects for us. And we see it so clearly in the Bible. In the passage that Pastor Ryan read earlier of Peter getting up to preach, Peter, the one who denied Christ. Jesus showing himself alive. And the disciples are changed. They're transformed. And just a few days earlier, Peter's crushed by his denial of Jesus. And now, just within months, he's preaching. Christ crucified. And he's preaching fearlessly about Jesus and explaining Jesus' death to the very people that killed Jesus. <clears throat> From dashed hopes to death-defying faith. But not just Peter, the other disciples are affected. The, the resurrection defines them and changes them and changes how they live. And Christians, you need to remember this. Your job 
doesn't ultimately define you. The resurrection of Christ is the fundamental fact of the Christian's life. The resurrection changes you. It, it defines you. And how does knowing that the grave is not the end of your life, how does that change your life today? Do you realize that most of your life will be lived on the other side of the grave? If so, how does that affect you to live now? It should. How does this truth affect how you make decisions, your values for your life, for your family, your priorities in your family? Do you live like you believe in the resurrection? Friends, the resurrection changes everything. I was reminded again this week of an interesting parable written by Homer of a fox traveling along a forest path, winding in and out of the trees. Finally, the fox finds himself at the entrance of a dark cave where he says it's visible to see many footprints going in. And from the darkness of the cave, there's a voice that says, come in here. But the fox says, no. I see many footprints going in, but I don't see any footprints coming out. I don't want to go in. Friends, this is the picture of death. Generations and generations going in, but no one coming out. All along, the great leaders of this world, the wisest people ever known, the most powerful to have ever lived, go in and never come out. Presidents, religious leaders, prophets, dictators, rulers, kings uniquely enter. Buddha entered. Mohammed entered. Stalin entered. But none of them ever come out. They are gone. They're dead. But Jesus came out. And that's why I want to listen to him. And why you should too. I want to follow him. I want to serve him. And listen to every word he spoke to us. Because he came out. He left the darkness. He's the only one. He's the only one who ever went in and came out. And he shows us that this world doesn't have all the answers. He teaches us that there's so much more than this life here on earth. There's more to this life. And his resurrection from the dead is proof. My friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We are glad you're here. And you're always welcome. But if you're not trusting in Christ, you don't have any confidence of life after death. But today, on resurrection morning, you can live in reality of the resurrection if you would turn from your life of sinful dependence upon yourself and wholly trust in Christ alone. The gospel is for you today. Right now. Right now, sinner. God's law requires that you die for your sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the agonizing judgment, a curse from God, an enemy that separates those who die in sin from God forever. And that's the bad news. 
But the good news is that Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life to God that you couldn't, that I couldn't. And that's how he became our righteousness. And that Jesus died and suffered God's wrath and judgment in my place and in your place on the cross. And that's how he takes away our sin and our guilt. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the death to life to prove that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our behalf. And that's what today is all about. And now God the Father calls everyone to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus alone as God and their Savior in order to be resurrected from dead, to be forgiven of their sins, to be made alive again through faith. And friends, you'll live forever, eternally with God. That's the good news. All who trust in Jesus, even if they die, will live again in the power of the resurrection. We will live again with God. We will have confidence because of Jesus coming back alive in this resurrection morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, we are neither afraid to die or to live in this world. We are now hope-filled children of the Almighty God. We are no longer enslaved to our sins, but we're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are less pitied than anybody and more grateful than everybody. Thank you that today we can remember that everything sad will come untrue and that all things broken will be made new. And we acknowledge this morning because of your resurrection, you are already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray for those in our midst that do not recognize you as Lord. May you use us to give them the hope that we live in every day of every year. God, may you use us for your own glory. And we pray, Jesus, in your resurrected and reigning name. Amen.